good morning. If you would take a copy of God's Word and let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page uh, 1041. One of the greatest achievements uh, in the history of art is the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. Uh, You can see it there on the screen. Between 1508 and 1512, Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle guys, (laughs) the great artist painted these beautiful murals that depict various scenes from Scripture. Can you imagine uh, walking into the Sistine Chapel and trying to describe the glory you see to someone on the phone? At first, you, you might, it might be hard to, to take it all in. And so you're, you're describing the whole scene, the whole, the whole thing at, at, at once. You're kind of summarizing a few specific th- scenes here and there as you see this and then you see this. But then maybe you'd go back and you'd revisit a scene mentioned before, but now you describe it a little further. John does something like that in Revelation 21. Already in chapter 21, verse 2, he mentioned the new Jerusalem. But he did so only in passing, as kind of part of a much larger vision. And now, in verses 9 to 27, John returns to the new Jerusalem. He explains the city further. And in the details, we we discover that, that the new Jerusalem is not just glorious architecture. This city is God's final answer to your deepest longings for peace and joy in God's presence. As we read God's Word, I want you to imagine the beauty of the New Jerusalem, but I also want you to consider the theological message that God speaks through this city's beauty and structure. Verse 9. Let's listen to God's word. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, Three gates. 
And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a beautiful picture. Verse 9 begins with words that we have heard before. In chapter 17, verse 1, we see an angel with one of the seven bowls. And he says, come and I will show you a woman. But it's another woman. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And we learned how the great prostitute personifies a city called Babylon. The people of that city are are not faithful to God... They are adulterous, and so God destroys them, and Babylon, the city, falls. But here the angel shows John another woman. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this woman also personifies a city, New Jerusalem, in verse 10. But this city represents those who belong to the Lamb. Unlike Babylon, New Jerusalem is not destroyed. She becomes the eternal city where God himself dwells. And in this way, Revelation presents you with two women who personify two cities. And the question is, which city is yours? Which city captivates your heart? God's Spirit, He is the one showing John this vision. God's Spirit means to persuade you away from Babylon and into the glories of New Jerusalem through Jesus Christ. So be thinking about that 
Which city captivates your heart as we go through this passage? And let's start by looking at the new Jerusalem as God's plan. The new Jerusalem is God's plan. It won't surprise you that John's vision here is building off of several Old Testament pictures and promises. And one of the pictures relates to uh, the mountain that he sees in verse 10. He, He says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Now Daniel chapter 2 foretold of a, of a great mountain. Throughout history, Daniel said that there would be these kingdoms that, that rise and fall, and each one would oppose the Lord and his people. But then Daniel sees a stone that's cut by no human hand. God's stone shatters these rebel kingdoms, and in their place, God raises up a high mountain, the mountain of his Messiah, and it covers the entire earth. Isaiah 2 tells the similar story. These other proud kingdoms would would try to assert their power over God's kingdom. But Isaiah foresees a day when, when God would level the opposition and then raise his mountain above all. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In Revelation, we have seen Babylon, and she is a city that is set on seven mountains. But we don't see them any, any longer. John sees God's mountain alone, and it is standing above all. And it wasn't just the mountain representing God's kingdom in the Old Testament. On top of that mountain was Jerusalem, God's city. And within Jerusalem was God's temple, his dwelling place. And so in other places, the promises focus not so much on the mountain, but on God raising up Jerusalem, raising up the city. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 10, that Jerusalem would remain aloft on the last day and dwell in security. And not just the city, but a new temple would rise too. And so in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the prophet has a vision that's, that's much like John's. Ezekiel is shown a new city with a new temple, also from the top of a mountain. And then nine chapters, some you probably skip sometimes in your Bible reading because of all the details of this temple. But he is, nine chapters detail this, this superior temple. It's presented in categories of the Old Covenant because that's what the people knew and expected, but but it describes a future dwelling that would stretch the imagination of any Jew. The size of the place, the the beauty of the place, the provisions, the, the architecture that ignores the basic geography of the land... I mean, in one place, you also get water. It's, it's coming out from God's presence in the temple, and it goes out, and it transforms a whole barren desert into an Eden-like paradise. And Ezekiel's prophecy, right at the very end, even names the city Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. He names the whole city that. Not just the temple. 
God's presence has filled the city. In other words, part of God's gracious plan, according to Ezekiel, was to create a new city where his dwelling far surpassed anything they had ever known before. God's presence would transform their whole land and life and people into paradise. Isaiah celebrated that same promise, but on Isaiah 60, we find yet another layer to the Old Testament promises for Jerusalem. God's presence would also bring the glory of God's light to the people. So God's light would would rise upon his people in the new city, Isaiah 60, verse 1, and then nations would be drawn to God's light and they would seek to live by God's light. And even more, I want you to listen to this from Isaiah 60, verse 11, and just see if it sounds familiar to you. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations. Sounds like what we read just... A few minutes ago, the sun, it says, shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And so we have these promises of God in Scripture, promises of God's kingdom rising like a high mountain, promises of God's dwelling unlike anything they had ever known before. Promises of of God's glory lighting up a new city for all the nations. And all these promises are finding their fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. The vision that John now sees. And all of them answer the desperate longing that we feel outside of the garden. Outside of paradise. Outside and cut off from God's presence. It's no accident that that many of these promises come to God's people in exile or, or after their return from exile. And they're seeing the consequences of their sin all around. They're seeing a city that's still messed up, that's still dying, that's not all that impressive. They feel the separation, the darkness, the homelessness, the conflict. And outside of the garden, that's what we all feel. We experience the same thing and we we long for things to change. The fellowship lost in the garden, we want it back. We don't deserve it. But then across the pages of Scripture, you have this merciful God revealing His gracious plan to make things right again. And John sees this final city now, and when he describes it, it's even better than the Old Testament shadows. Consider, for instance, the New Jerusalem as God's place. The New Jerusalem as God's place. The the Old Jerusalem served its purpose. God chose to put His name there. As the king followed the law, the people would witness God's rule, and in this way, the city was supposed to be a light for the nations. But as the story goes in the Old Testament, we know that Jerusalem didn't live up to its ideal. Sin had warped the people, and it warped the people so badly that when God himself visited the city in the person of Jesus, the people of that city crucified him. 
And that's why chapter 11, verse 8 of Revelation names the old Jerusalem after God's enemies. It calls it Sodom and Egypt. Because they crucified the Lord. But notice how John describes the new Jerusalem. The new city meets God's ideal in in every way. She is, it says in verse 11, the holy city. She's set apart holy for God. She now reflects God's own holiness, which which the angels had celebrated in chapter 4, verse 8, around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. And now we see this city itself is holy. Verse 27 in our passage says that, that nothing unclean will ever enter the city. She's now without sin. She is totally pure. New Jerusalem is also an unshakable place. On, on several occasions in Scripture, you know, the, the city of Jerusalem is ransacked. The people are carried away. Well, that ain't happening with New Jerusalem. I mean, the city comes with a great high wall, it says. And verse 16 measures the wall at 12,000 stadia. That's length and width and height. So to put that in perspective, the Burj Khalifa is the tallest building in the world at just over a half a mile high. This city is 1,400 miles high. Far beyond any human ability, and it speaks to the grandeur of the God who makes it. But more important is the theological message of the 12,000 by 12,000. It's a 12,000 by 12,000 square. And we've, we've seen this number before in chapter 7, verse 4. And there, 12,000 squared symbolize the fullness of God's people. And the wall is also 144 cubits thick in verse 17. 12 times 12, yet again. You see, at the visionary level, John sees a city that stretches from here to New York. But the symbolic level pushes us to see more. God's city houses the fullness of His people. God builds a place that's suitable for His people to perfection. And that's the point here. It's also a beautiful place. Verse 18 says, "...the city was pure gold, clear as glass." And that's better understood as as having a mirror-like reflection. In verse 19, the walls themselves are jasper and then adorned with every kind of jewel. He lists 12 of them. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. It's nearly every color of the rainbow shining. But we need to see more than mere jewels... To begin, these jewels recall the paradise that is around Eden. So if you look back at Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, we see a river going out and there is gold in the land and and delium and onyx. And then later on in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, we see this list of various jewels like topaz and jasper and emerald and several more. 
all described as being the, the precious stones that are in the garden of God. So in part, we're getting here that this new city reflects paradise. The jewels also represent God's faithfulness to keep His Word. In Isaiah chapter 54, uh, verses 11 to 12, God came to His people in their, prop, in their poverty and, and He promised this. He said, O afflicted one, He's talking to Jerusalem, the people as Jerusalem, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. These jewels will reflect the love of the one who found his people storm-tossed, afflicted, and then by grace joined them to what is beautiful. These jewels will in some ways be like the jewels a wife might wear that remind her of her husband's love. These jewels will remind us that God came to us storm-tossed and afflicted and joined us to what is beautiful in His paradise. On top of that, these jewels reflect God's presence, our access to God's presence. And that's another big part to this picture. We need to see the new Jerusalem as God's presence. These same jewels decorated the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus 28, verses 17 to 20. So it's really fitting that the dwelling place of God and the garden had these jewels and And the place that was supposed to represent the dwelling place of God among the people also has these jewels. But they're they're worn on the the breastplate of of the high priest. There were 12 of them for each of the tribes of Israel. And they represented the people of God before the presence of God as the priest would bring the blood to atone for their sins. But what we're seeing here is that the blood of the true Lamb, Jesus Christ, has has accomplished something far greater. The jewels of New Jerusalem decorate not just the priests, but the entire city. Because the entire city has become the place of God's presence. And the entire people have been made a priestly order who walk with God in His new paradise. Notice, too, how John puts it in verse 11. The city comes down having the glory of God. So it's no longer the case that it it kind of manifests itself temporarily in a tabernacle or temporarily in a temple that's torn up and and hauled off by the Babylonians. No, the new city simply has the glory of God permanently. And, and in saying this, we understand the whole city as God's new and final dwelling place. Verse 11 further says that its radiance was like a, a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. 
Now, the last time Jasper appears is when John sees God's throne in chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3 he says, and he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper. In other words, the new city shines with the same beauty as God's throne. Because God is present throughout the city. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17, anticipated this when Jerusalem, the whole city, it says, shall be called the throne of the Lord. The whole city, the throne of the Lord. But it gets even better if we go back to the angel. Let's go back to verses 15 to 17 where we see him measuring the city. We already noted the significance of the city lying four square, 12,000 times 12,000, right? It, it houses all of God's people. But isn't it peculiar that John also describes the city as a cube? Its length and width and height are equal. That's what verse 16 says. That's a strange cityscape. Why a cube? It's a cube because the Holy of Holies, the place where God manifested His presence above the Ark of the Covenant, that place was a cube. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. Listen to the description. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And Solomon overlaid it with pure gold. And now John sees an entire city shaped like a cube and the whole city is pure gold. Are you putting it together? The entirety of the new Jerusalem is now the Holy of Holies. More accurate, the Holy One has made the entire city this, His most holy place. God's presence fills and sanctifies everything. Unlike the old days where, where only a few select mediators had access to God's presence, now everyone has access. We will live in the true Holy of Holies. Verses 22 to 23 takes this idea even further. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now this fits the picture of the whole city being the Holy of Holies. The fullness of God's presence in the city replaces the need for a special place inside. And this isn't something new. God could even tell the people that He was with, I will be your sanctuary. And here we see that coming to its, its fullness, right? The, the fullness of God's presence in the city replaces the need for a special place inside the city. I mentioned before that Isaiah 60 verse 4 anticipates this reality, but, but what John adds here is how the Lamb is also the temple. We see in the Old Testament these promises of God being their temple, but, but here the Lamb is the temple. Jesus had said before in John chapter 2 that he himself would replace the old temple when he raised his own body from the dead. And now we're seeing the end goal here. To be in the presence of Jesus is to see and experience the fullness of God. The city also has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says that, that God dwells in unapproachable light. So the brightest lights that you know, sunlight, starlight, God is his own unique light apart from those lesser created lights. The new Jerusalem will radiate with his most pure divine brightness. But it's at this point that we shouldn't forget the new Jerusalem as God's people. The new Jerusalem as God's people. To say that the city will radiate with divine brightness is also to say that the people themselves will radiate with God's brightness. Not because they are the source of God's light, but because they now reflect God's light in all that they are and do. Go back with me to verse 9. In verse 9, we we hear the angel say, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, in chapter 19, verse 8, we learned how that bride symbolized the church. It was the people of God from every age who placed their faith in Jesus and followed Him. And John sees this bride again in verse 9, but but then describes her in terms of a city temple. You know, Paul called the church God's temple. And 1 Peter would say that we are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house. But here we see the church as, as the temple consummated. As New Jerusalem, God's people are now complete. Notice again how verse 12 describes the walls and the gates and the foundations. On the gates, he says, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then in verse 14, there's twelve foundations for the walls. And on them, the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Why the names of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles of the Lamb? Because these are the ones that represent the people of God. Across the Testaments. It captures the fullness of God's people. The city is not mere architecture. It is a people. It is the saints across the ages who belong to the Lamb. And not just across the ages, but across the lands. Notice in verse 13, the the gates stand open to face in every direction. People have gathered into God's city from all over. They come not to do their own thing, though but to devote themselves to the Lord in worship. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk. I mean, can you, can you believe this? The, the, the nations will live in ways that are wholly fitting to God's will. They no longer choose the path of moral darkness. Verse 27 says that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Why will nothing enter it like that? Because there is nothing like that left. New Jerusalem has taken up everything. Talk about a counterculture. We're so used to everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. But the people of New Jerusalem are characterized by total obedience to God's Word. We find them here in their glorified state. Not only do they walk by the light of God's glory, they they also bring their glory and honor into it. Glory and honor appear elsewhere in, in Revelation, and when they do, it's in the context of worship. 
And we're seeing, so, so we're, what we're seeing here is, is God's royal priesthood from, from every nation, and, and the redeemed nations are, are giving honor and glory to the Lord in all that they do. You see, in New Jerusalem, we are seeing how the world ought to be and how the world will be. And that affects the church now, doesn't it? That impacts us now. You, you are a little outpost of the New Jerusalem. Galatians and Hebrews says that in one sense, you already belong to the Jerusalem above, to Zion. The world should see in the church the ethic and worship of New Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, God already dwells in our midst. You stand as a prophetic pointer to all that this city here is about. What an amazing day it will be when God finishes His work in us. Maybe you're asking, though, how? How is it possible that people like us or anyone could ever enjoy such closeness to the Lord? I mean, given that our sins have made a separation between us and the Lord. How is it possible that anyone come to live in the true holy of holies like this? How is the new Jerusalem populated at all, given our fallen condition in Adam? Well, verse 9 has the answer when it identifies these people as the wife of the Lamb. Verse 14 has the answer when it associates the foundations of the city with the apostles of the Lamb. Verse 23 has the answer when we see the Lamb as the true light of the world shining the way. Verse 27 has the answer when it identifies the people as only those who are written in the book of life of the Lamb. The Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, over and over. That's how God populates the New Jerusalem. If you're part of New Jerusalem, it's not because of anything you do. It is because everything the Lamb has done for you. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, wrote your name in His book of life before the foundation of the world. Even before you screwed up, He had a plan to save you. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, laid down His life for you to make you His bride. His blood cleanses you and makes you spotless. And here we're seeing it will even adorn you with the most precious beauties. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, entrusts, entrusted His apostles with the gospel message that you heard one day and you believed along with countless others who will walk by the light of God's glory. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, will cause his light to so penetrate your life that you will obey forever and never sin again. The Lamb has done it all. That's how. That's how. So trust in the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Set your hope in the Lamb. All who trust in him will find their home in New Jerusalem. 
So let me ask you again, which city captivates your heart? I mean, we've heard a lot about Babylon since chapter 17. And now we have the new Jerusalem. Which city captivates your heart? The message of Revelation presses that question upon us. It's it's written to the churches like those in chapters 2 and 3. The other city, Babylon, she has her own competing riches and her own competing pleasures. And she is... And, and, and that city is tempting the church with idolatry and sexual immorality and worldly riches and political power. And Babylon is still offering you these pleasures today. America is chock full with them. But the way to overcome the fleeting pleasures is by setting your sights on the superior pleasures of New Jerusalem, especially the pleasure of God. I mean, think about it. God is so glorious that he outsigns the sun. His riches are so amazing that, that he makes the most precious stones look like common building materials. I don't, I don't know, Greg, you're in, into stonework. You ever use jewels as concrete? Nobody puts jewels on the foundations, they put them on the walls. But here, everything is a jewel, or, or gold is asphalt. Whole gates of pearl. Don't get me wrong, the point isn't to diminish their beauty, but to say that even the brightest, costliest things you can imagine are nothing compared to the glory of God at the center of the city. The problem we fight now is being too easily pleased with this world. I mean, we sing, I exalt thee. And in the middle of our songs, we can have thoughts, can't we? Wonder what they think of my voice. Our thoughts of God, our highest thoughts of God could be mixed with, wonder what they think of me. What did those visitors think of us? Oh, someone liked my Facebook post. So easily pleased. For the other churches in chapters 2 to 3, it wasn't so much Babylon's pleasures. It was Babylon's persecution. You might recall how How chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, it pictured God's people as an embattled city. We don't yet experience the peace of New Jerusalem. Rather, the church is being trampled down by the nations for a time. And in that experience, you start having thoughts like, maybe if we just blend in with the culture, this persecution will go away. Maybe it won't be so hard anymore. Maybe if we syncretize Christian teaching with some other worldly teaching, they'll leave us alone. And we compromise Christ to fit in with the crowd. I want you to listen to how Hebrews applies the New Jerusalem to Christians who are facing persecution. Because New Jerusalem is is meant to spur us on to resist those kinds of temptations. Listen to this from Hebrews 13, verse 12 to 14. It says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The city that is to come. The one we've been reading about today. You identify with Jesus outside the camp with all the disgrace and ridicule and mocking that's going to come with it? Why? Why why do that? Because here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. The new Jerusalem. That's our home. That's our reward. Every sacrifice in the path of obedience will give way to glory and beauty and joy and rest in God's presence. That's why. And so whether it's worldly pleasures or worldly persecution tempting you away from Jesus, let the glories of New Jerusalem persuade you to stay the course. When you're tempted with pleasures, you look to the greater ones that are in the New Jerusalem. When you're tempted with, perse- with persecution, remember Jews- New Jerusalem as your reward. And then you just put one foot in front of the other until the Lord brings you home. The Lord doesn't give us this vision in ignorance of your difficult situation. I mean, think, you go back and read the churches of chapters 2 and 3. Think of the hardships they are facing. Remember, Jesus also walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. So he sees what you're facing. And he knows what you need to see in order to get through what you're facing. And you need to see the new Jerusalem. You need to see this city. If you belong to the Lamb, this is the end of your story. Your story doesn't end with what you did five years ago in that relationship. Your story doesn't end with a spouse who betrays you. Your story doesn't end with how you failed our Lord two hours ago. Your story doesn't end with regrets about that past decision. It doesn't end with disappointment at work. It doesn't end with not leading as well as you should have. It doesn't end with depression. It doesn't end with cancer. It doesn't end with death. These things are part of your story. But if you belong to the Lamb, your story ends with glory and peace and joy in the new Jerusalem. Your story ends with life in the true holy of holies. Your story ends with a new paradise where there's not even the inclination to sin. Nothing you do will be mixed with falsehood or hypocrisy. All will be done in pure, devoted worship because you will see God as He is. The Lamb will shine your path every day and darkness will be over. Every darkness will be over. United to the Lamb, you will be God's people in God's place, before God's presence, according to God's plan, forever. That is the end of your story in Christ. Let's give thanks in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us this vision. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who showed it to John. We thank you that it's clear for us to understand. We thank you for pouring out your Spirit to give us understanding in it. And we pray that that understanding would stay with us. That this city would be our meditation from in the weeks ahead. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. And we thank you for the blood of the Lamb that makes it all possible.
Amen.